my greatest fear was that we would lose her and I would bury my sister. And I never <laughs> imagined that you could lose somebody and still keep them in this way. She is still physically here, but she is very much gone. And so the grief is, it never subsides in the way that it can when you lose someone and there is some facts around it. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life explores the stories of real people who've navigated their way out of life's toughest situations, emerging with greater strength and resilience. If these stories remind you of your own journey and you or someone you know need help, our collective journey is here for you. Whenever you're ready to take that next step, reach out to us at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Welcome back to the Plugged In Media Network studio and another episode of From Darkness to Life. Uh, Ryan here, hosting this week with one of our one of our very lovely guests that are courageous, vulnerable, and I just can't say enough about the guests that come on this show that are open to sharing their journeys and, and journeys with their loved ones and you know, we were just discussing before we turned the mic on that, you know, everybody out there knows somebody, if it's not themselves, knows somebody going through something, um, whether it's addiction related or some sort of obstacles in their life or adverse experiences that they're going through. And so many people don't reach out. So many people are, you know, afraid to talk about it or we're brought up in this culture where, you know, our problems are our problems and we don't want to let anybody else know about them because, well, stigma is a big thing. And I don't want to be seen as weak or I should be able to fix these problems ourselves and, you know, all these things. And, you know, I lived in that lifestyle for so long too. And it took me to trying to take my life a couple of times. And this is one of the big powerful things about, you know, especially podcasts and social media. And it's, it's easy to get some narratives out there, some, some stories of hope and, and just resonate with people. So, um, with that, Oh, one other thing is we, we decided this year we, we've, created our own social media for from darkness to life for specifically for our podcast so any listeners out there that are looking for it it's uh, on instagram at fdtl podcast so that's fdtl from darkness to life podcast and with that i think we'll introduce our guests so welcome to the show Alyssa. hi thanks Uh, for having me (laughs) thanks for coming on i know this isn't you know, the easiest thing to do, but it's such a valuable piece. And you and I kind of touched on that prior to hit and record that, you know, what more people need to know these stories and more people need to be okay with coming forward and sharing or reaching out for support because we all know the downside if we don't, right? Yeah. I feel like finding that connection is honestly just like such a lifeline, even if it's not you personally going through the addiction, like finding other people that are touched by it in some way is just such um that connection is so instant because people shy away from talking about it that um when you can be honest with people it's uh very healing mm-hmm. i think that's a big piece that you just talked about right and you mentioned the healing piece for me when i reached out and started to connect with other individuals that were struggling with the same types of things i was struggling with i'd been through so many years of this you know rough journey I was on thinking that I was alone and nobody would ever understand what I was going through. And, and once I saw that, I remember going to treatment thinking, holy shit, there's other people just like me that are doing the, you know, struggling with this too. This is really cool in a, in a, in a healthy kind of way. I, I had no idea there was other people that were going through it that were just like me. 
Yeah, I feel like sometimes it like opens a door and it's like a whole world exists that you just didn't have access to before. And it's like shocking sometimes to realize how overwhelming it is affecting everyone. Um, but once you step into that other side, it is so much more comforting finding all the people that understand that have walked through that door with you. Like, mm -hmm. it's just a, I like, and you want to go back. <laughs> I find sometimes I want to go back to that blissful world before. Um, but also it's like a more enriched world on this side to understand all the dark sides and all the people that are affected by it. And like that they're normal too. Like it's mm. all just normal people. You just needed that to find that connection with them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I love how you put that, uh, all the dark sides, right. And all the individuals that are struggling out there with these obstacles and, and their own darkness. It's now that I'm on this side of it and have been through my own dark journey, you know, I realize these people aren't what I used to think they are. Right. I, I yeah. see that we're all good people um, mm -hmm. generally, and we're, we're not, you know, we're not awful human beings. We're just sick people trying to get well. And it's so much easier to get well when you have a support network around you that is headed in the same direction. Yeah. I find, um, okay. I'm going to go a little sidetracked on you. That's um, okay. Thanks for signaling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, maybe you can edit this out. Oh no, we don't edit point. anything. Okay. Um, I, um, I lost uh, my daughter and it was one year after my sister had overdosed. And mm. up until that point, like I understood addiction and we had lots of deep conversations um, about addiction re really openly with her. Um, but when I lost my daughter, it shocked my whole system. And there was a point where, and like, I, I fully understood addiction at this point and I saw the warning signs and I could see myself taking um, the painkillers long after I needed them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I see. Like I'm, I'm removed enough to see that I'm following her same footsteps. And at the same time, I also don't care. Like it was, I, I understood the ramifications of it. And I still in that moment was like, that's okay. I can see it and I'm going to do it anyways, because this is what I need in this moment, mm -hmm. which was a really scary thing to go through after seeing my sister, like completely lose her life and everything. And still it, the warning sign was still not big enough to be like, Oh, I should stop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, I think even the people that are like, Oh, I would never do that. It's like, well, these people also said that they would never do that. Like drug addiction is not a thing that you go into willingly to be like, oh yeah, like this is where I want my life path to lead me. Like they, that no one's wanting that. Yeah. Wow. I like how you put that. Um, you know, you could see based on where it took your sister, you could see those same patterns in your own life, but you didn't, I can't remember the exact wording you used, but you, you still continued. You knew that. Yeah, it was such a selfish thing and I was very aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was even like shocking to me that I was like, oh, okay, I can see it and I can understand why she continued to use it knowing how bad she felt afterwards. Because in that moment, it's just the one thing 
to get through like the one day at a time thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it, you know, I, I never sugarcoat this when I was in drug addiction or using my substance, it worked wonderfully for what I was using it for. Like there was no doubt that I knew exactly what it was going to produce. And the farther I went down that rabbit hole, similar to what you're saying, right. Is, um, eventually I lost the choice in it. Eventually, right. you know, yeah. the, the, uh, my body needed it. The, the rewiring of my brain and all these different things that go on with addiction, you know, it was taking place in me. I had no idea what that was at the time. I, I was uneducated. I didn't know anything. Right. I'm like, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. But mm-hmm. now I can easily see, and especially listening to individuals like yourself sharing your journey, you know, this is a common thing with people. It's not that I love how you put that. And I've said it so many times myself. I didn't wake up one morning saying, man, I can't wait to blow up my life today. <laughs> and everyone around me. <laughs> yeah. Right. I feel like people misunderstand it as like, um, there was a lot of sympathy for me when I was going through that because what happened was out of my control, but how I was treating it was in my control. Mm -hmm. And so there was a weird like sympathy around me. Whereas like my sister never got that because they felt like it was her choice. And she had this from the outside, like, Oh, she has the perfect life. So like, why would she choose to do that? There was nothing circumstantial that happened that forced her into that. But at the same time, like no one took the time to actually talk to her and find out why she was using it. That's, oh, that is such a big, powerful statement, I think. And I find that, you know, more often than not, what you just said is, is the key point that so many people don't take the time to, to ask why, right? They see the addiction, but they don't ask. I think Gabor Monte says it all the time, right? Why? not why the addiction, why the pain? What is the underlying cause of why is somebody using these substances? What are they running from? What are they using it to cope with? What are they numbing out? Because even if you take the drugs and alcohol away, you know, you still have me. I still Mm -hmm. have my problems. Now, what am I going to use to cope with that? Because I don't have the skills, the abilities to deal with any of that stuff. Yes. And I do feel like, yeah, I feel like a lot of people are missing that like something to fill that void. And so obviously like drugs and alcohol are just an easy thing that masks it so that you do feel like it has stopped the pain. It's Mm -hmm. just that it very much expands the pain at the same time. Oh my gosh. Right. And for the individual in the middle of that, I know speaking from my own experience, I was kind of blind to that expanding the pain part, right? I, I didn't see the ripple effect and I didn't see the long-term consequences. It was just in the moment I need to get out of this. And that's the quickest escape I had. Right. And like, how can we fault people for that when our whole society has created like, Oh, if you have a headache, like the first thing is take a Tylenol. And then for some reason, if your pain is more mental and emotional, we fault people for trying to numb that as well. When it's the same kind of effect that we're looking for Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i just i feel like it's so misunderstood and it's i'm glad that you've like got this podcast where you can talk about it because i do feel like the more people talk about it the easier it is to understand it and then we can break down those miscommunications for sure yeah i totally agree and there's there's a lot of them out there right even you know it's 2023 now and we i still hear well they had a choice. That's their choice to, you know, be 
be where they're at today. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I guarantee you go talk to that. You know, this is a little tangent, but you go talk to that individual who's living in the park, pushing a shopping cart with their five belongings that they have to their name. I guarantee they didn't choose that life to be sitting right where they're at today. And, you know, some of them are addicted to substances, whatever, right? There's an entire process that went on in their life to get them to where they are at today. Exactly. Like there's no little kids that like, when I grow up, I want to be an addict. Like that's just, it doesn't (laughs) exist. So like, it's a lot of time and process to get to that point. And it's usually like a last resort. Like it's not like, it's usually the first thing that someone does. It's a learned kind of behavior and it's an offered behavior because other people have found that it does numb it. And Mm -hmm. so it is it's an easier choice, I guess, than like facing it head on, which not everyone can do. Oh, yeah. And, the, and you're exactly right. Everybody is so different. And it goes back to, you know, thank goodness everybody's so different and what a boring world this would be. But it goes back to the multiple pathways to addiction. You know, not you don't try crack cocaine the first time and suddenly you're you know, I'm a crack addict. I'm, I'm addicted to crack cocaine. I mean, there are people that that's happened to, I'm sure, but you know, it's, it's, it's not the just say no concept. It's, it's all these different complex things that come together to form the right, uh, the perfect storm to, to start down that path of addiction, I think. Right. And like you had said, um, it talks about, or we talk about you know, somebody's experience, somebody needs to be introduced to this substance. Somebody needs to be introduced to this group of people that are using this to cope with this or that. Right. And, and suddenly it's normalized and suddenly this is my coping mechanism and nothing else is going to work as efficiently as that does in the moment. Cause you know, now that we're on the other side of this and <clears throat> I look at all the therapy I took and all the, the treatment I took, right. To get through all those underlying causes and work through them. And, and that's a long, you know, can be a very bumpy road, but I see after eight, nine years, how beneficial it is. But in that moment, when I was in addiction, do I want to start that path or do I want to just take a rip of this? And I know in 30 seconds, it's going to work. And it's such a hard thing to get through. I'm like, it's on a much smaller scale. Like I've been laughing and telling my husband, like, I'm going to lose weight this year. And I could, I could diet and exercise, but that takes a lot of effort and sitting down and enjoying like a movie with my husband and eating a bag of chips, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, it's just all of a sudden every day is that. And then I've lost six months where I was going to do mm-hmm. the work and it was going to benefit me this long later. And now I've lost all that time. And so like people, I just like don't understand how people can't see that. Like if you find other things hard to commit to, then how do you not understand when it's that hard, but also there's like a full mental mm-hmm. addiction going on to the drug on top of it. Absolutely. Like it's just, it's so much harder to crawl out of that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. And when you start getting a little bit of education around it, depending how much you want to get around it and you, you start to educate yourself around the neuro science, the neurophysiology of addiction and the impact it has on our brain and the reward motivation system and all these things, right? Um, I remember when I first got into recovery and I went to school as an, for an addictions counselor and started to get into those modules. I'm like, holy smokes, I don't think I stood a chance. Like I, that was so foreign to me, all that 
brain chemistry stuff. I'm like, no wonder I couldn't quit. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably because your brain hadn't even fully developed by the time you were addicted. And so it's like, you're also working with a brain that's just not at its full capacity. So like, it's hard because that's, I feel like most people get addicted when they're still developing mm -hmm. themselves. And so like, how could we blame them for not being able to combat that? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So you've spoke quite a bit about your sister. I believe her name's Kimmy, right? Yeah, yeah, she is. Uh, she was 18 months younger than me. Uh, so we were super close growing up. Like it, I think most people thought we were twins cause she was really tall for her age and <laughs> I was really short for my age. So like we looked like twins going to school, <laughs> um, which was great. We like shared friends. We shared all of our interests and everything. We were very tight growing up yeah. and she was beautiful. Like school came easy to her i think like her grades were always a's mine were struggling <laughs> um she was like gorgeous and she was tall for her age and she was very developed for her age um so she looked like the golden child she was the dare programs advocate at one point wow. like she was all in on being the perfect version of a daughter mm -hmm. um and then i think high school hit and even if you look like you have everything put together people start judging you on that girls are mean to you because you are put together and because life looks easy for you and um she had a teacher that i think took that out on her like there was a jealousy component of like well your life looks so easy and mm -hmm. um unfortunately she just made life really hard for kimmy oh, no. um yeah which is so hard to look at because like i don't know why you would go into teaching if you're not there for the kids and it doesn't matter if a kid is perfect that shouldn't hold a kid back like you should push that kid to excel even more Absolutely. but um yeah it was really unfortunate and a lot of events led to like just such a ripple effect and at the end of grade 12 she was in a really bad spot and that's all it took for somebody to offer her coke to make all those feelings go away and they did and it worked and she liked it and and that's that's it that's all it took yeah and that's that's sometimes how quick it happens right yeah and, and I, it was very it felt like um we were like one of those picture perfect families like <laughs> yeah and and then i graduated and i remember like um my grandma like leaned down to my sister at my graduation and was like i can't wait to see you next year get just as many or more awards and that puts such a pressure on her and i feel like that was such a a cracking point of like okay there's so much that i need to prove to other people instead of just like proving to herself that like she could have a grade 12 grade 12 year and just like it's i don't know <laughs> sorry makes, i'm like losing it makes sense it totally makes sense right how one you know you hear this all the time how does you know um an individual and a sibling come from the same house under the same roof one goes down one path one goes down the other path and this is kind of how it happens right yeah just like a minuscule thing and i guess like i had 
I had a lot of self-worth, even though I wasn't great at school. I had things that fulfilled me. Mm -hmm. And I think she never really found those things because everything came really easy to her. So nothing really fulfilled her in that way of like when you have to strive to get grades, when you have to strive to get onto a sports team. Um, And so... Yeah, I think it it was really hard on my parents when everything happened. But then there was that kind of like, they're so close in age. Like we raised them the exact same. Mm-hmm. And one turned out okay. And one took this other path. And like uh, and the judgment still comes as like, oh, you guys must have done something. For sure. To cause this. And so I was like a lot of the times I was like, but it wasn't you because I'm here telling you like I had the same experiences and even like later in her addiction, she would lash out and like blame them, which is an easy target. Um, And it hurt my parents a lot. And then I would reassure them like, no, she's just saying that because she is in the throes of it. But like, she's describing a horrible childhood and I was also in that childhood and it wasn't that. So it it became a thing where she would start creating a past narrative Mm -hmm. to almost like ease her own guilt over what had happened. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I just sat with a lady yesterday speaking with her about her daughter and, you know, the rude and harmful things her daughter can throw at her. And that's, that's right where we were talking about, right? Like a lot of that is shame-based. A lot of that is the guilt that that individual is holding. And it's really easy to blame mom for it all. And it kind of takes away some of that weight that she's carrying. She's actually quite upset with herself, but let's throw it at mom. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's like, um, it's like your parents become a mirror and Mm -hmm. it's everything you're hating in yourself can now be thrown at them, but really it's it's what you're saying like yeah. about yourself. And that's so hard for parents, right? And and for loved ones cuz especially parents where, you know, ingrained and it's just part of being a parent is you want to look out for your children, you want to keep them safe, you want to have, you know, you love your children, all these things, right? So to have that thrown back at you, it, it's oh my gosh, it's so heavy for parents as well. Yeah. You said your oldest is two? Uh that's my youngest. My oldest oh, is Oh, your youngest five <laughs> and then i have a 18 year old i like to spread them out okay yeah. <laughs> i see you've got all the experience too <laughs> yeah i find it's yeah i'm sure like as parents like uh, my oldest is uh 12 and when i look at him i still see like a toddler and mm-hmm. so i'm sure as parents watching a child go through addiction is like seeing them as a baby still and wanting to protect them while knowing that and I guess I know, but like, I maybe in my parents' generation, they didn't know how to like help her through it because they were so afraid of just the overwhelming title of an addiction that they didn't know how to seek any kind of help for her. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and going back to the, you know, that, you know, space in that time and space, I mean, the stigma around addiction was 10 times what it what it is now it's really it's still not great but i mean back we're talking like the early 2000s the 90s stuff like that it's you know people pointed fingers oh yeah yeah that's yeah i remember them going to is it al-anon that's for the parents yeah yeah 
And I remember them feeling like they didn't want anyone to know that they were going to that meeting. Oh, for sure. And I think even my mom like felt a lot of shame at the meeting and was like, I don't belong here. Like my daughter's not that bad. Like these parents are going through it and this is not the place for us because we're, I think, I think they thought like they were above it because we were like a middle income family with like, she looked, she did not look like a drug addict at all. And so my mom very much was an appearance person and she didn't want that appearance reflecting back on our family. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like we've discussed, you know, in the last 20 minutes, you know, the, the obstacles that families and individuals who are in addiction, the obstacles they face and what keeps them stuck and what keeps them out there for so long are, are some of those things you just mentioned, right? It's, we don't want this reflecting back on us personally. We don't want, you know, our story to get out there. I don't belong in here. I'm not, maybe I'm not quite as bad as that family or that individual or whatever, right? There's all these different things that come together that keep people out there suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think so, what you spoke about earlier is, you know, we all paint this, this lovely picture for everybody else on the outside to see, like we're normal, things are going well, all these things, right? But behind that picture, oh my gosh, there's a lot of chaos happening for the individual and the family. And it's, yeah. where do you go? What do you do? It's so hard to navigate. It's like the, it's like the social media aspect right now where it's like, everyone's like, our family is perfect. Look at all these photos. We're amazing. Uh, And then we forget that like everyone is also struggling at the same time. Like even if they're posting a beautiful photo every day, we're also like crying ourselves to sleep. (laughs) For sure. Like nobody talks about that was the 23rd draft I made to make this one post because I picked apart, I didn't look right in that picture and I looked too fat in that picture and I wrote, somebody's going to think I'm dumb by what I wrote here and I've been on that, that carousel before. And it's just like, I had to put my phone away. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm like, and that was before social media was even a thing where we weren't even like trying to achieve the like perfect social media thing, but it still existed. It was just your friends seeing you and your friends and family. And you were worried about their specific judgment, which is almost worse because they are personally connected to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But that shame is, is what holds back so much of the like therapy that we could find for people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Shame is, you know, I don't know. I'm sure you've delved into the world of Brene Brown before, but when she talks about shame and vulnerability and yeah, it's fascinating stuff, right? So anybody who has not, uh, you'd have to be living under a rock, I think, not to have been exposed to Brene Brown in these conversations. But I highly suggest getting into some of them because that was, you know, really um, enlightening for me to hear those kind of narratives from her because it it resonated with me in my life. Like, man, I was so full of shame and I was not being vulnerable. Like, I was this big, tough man that nothing was getting through. And I was going to let you know who I was. Right. I think like my favorite thing that she's ever talked about is the difference between sympathy and empathy, Mm -hmm. um, which gets forgotten a lot about. And I do feel like you do need to understand what empathy is in order to understand the addiction side of everything. Yeah. That's so powerful and such a, such a, an amazing concept to distinguish between the two. I I couldn't agree more. And 
one of the other things she talks about is guilt and shame and the difference between the two. And that's what I could really resonate with in my journey was, you know, I did all these horrible things in my active addiction and I felt guilty about them. But once I started to see the, the, the ripple effect and the people that it impacted, that's when the shame, you know, it switched over to shame and Mm -hmm. I wasn't making problems. I am the problem. And that's when the suicide switch for me turned on. Once I thought and it was positive, I was the problem. I'll eliminate the problem from everyone's life and then they can carry on. You know, my two boys will go to my funeral, mourn my lo- mourn their loss, this and that, miss their dad for a bit. And then they'll carry on and have a happy life and just insane way of thinking. But that's where it took me. But you're already like at rock bottom oh. when you're at that point. So like, there's not a lot of logic down there at rock bottom. None. Um, so I can understand why you feel that way. Um, I very much didn't understand suicide until I was <laughs> suicidal, yeah. um, which I think is probably common. It's like, oh, I could never do that. And then all of a sudden you're in the moment where you're like, you know what? The only thing that does make sense is if I remove myself. Yeah. And what a you just thanks for sharing that piece, because I know some people it's really hard to talk about, but. What a dark spot that was when I finally made that decision and I thought it was the right decision. I thought this is the best beneficial decision for everybody involved is I'm going to take my life by suicide. (laughs) And you're right. There's no, there's zero logic around me at that moment. It's dark and that's the option. Yeah. And I feel like people don't want to talk about that really dark stuff. Like I know, um, So I was suicidal after I lost my daughter um, and people were worried that I was suicidal, but also wouldn't talk to me Mm -hmm. about it. And I'm like, I just like, I'm like, I'm very enveloped in death right now. And you're telling me like, to me, I was like, if I kill myself, like I'm going to be with her. Um, So there was a comforting fact to it on top of just like removing myself. Um, And still people were just like, shocked that I was saying that I could do that and at the same time not wanting to talk to me about it when that was all I wanted to talk about yeah so just exploring that piece a little more Alyssa do you think it would have been helpful if those individuals would have asked you some questions around you know are you thinking about suicide what does that look like and just having those conversations yeah um I actually I was super lucky um and so I lost my daughter through stillbirth and I'm sorry. Which is also a very off, like taboo topic in our society. Um, But with that, I've found that there's a lot of moms who are breaking the stigma right now, and we are all talking about it. So I did find a community of other moms who had been through that exact experience. And so they were willing to talk about it with me because they were in that same, they also were feeling that way. Um, So we all kind of leaned on each other in a way that I don't feel like existed in the addiction side for my parents in a community sense of having that, those open discussions where there is no judgment and there is no shame. And like, we're all talking about being suicidal, but we're not making anyone feel like, oh, you shouldn't do that because everyone else would hurt. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh no, I can see why you want to do that because I also feel this way. And that would be my first instinct too. And just having that understanding is, yeah, it's like, 
it's like breaking your heart open and then finding that there's more room. And so like, I just, I, it's something that I wish, um, like when Alana asked me to do this podcast, I was like, yes, because I've never been asked to talk about addiction, even though that is just as big of an experience as losing my daughter was, but her stuff is all very open and I can talk about it and people accept it. And I feel like the same is not happening with addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wish my parents could have that experience because I do feel like that connection is, it was everything to me in that first year. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. That's, uh, that got me, got the emotions going <laughs> hearing that story. Wow. Sorry. No, that's... Uh, it's a lot. Um, that's okay. Yeah. It, uh, my life like imploded in a, a year's span. Um, and then I'll just dive into all of it. Um, when we lost her in the stillbirth, uh, my life was only saved by, I don't know, the doctors say a miracle. And so like, it's just very chance. And so my parents did almost lose both of their daughters within a year's span. And one would have been really judged and everyone would have felt really sorry for them losing me because mine was like a trauma that wasn't expected. And so yeah. like, there is no guilt and shame over that, but still at the same time, like they almost lost both their daughters in a year to totally different things. And so like life is just wildly fragile. And I wish we could just, while we're here, take the opportunities to make those connections and like really understand people in an empathetic way yeah. instead of the sympathetic way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's a huge piece. And talking about life being so fragile, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, we tiptoe around life so often I did for 20 years, right? Not really having meaningful conversations with anybody, not really doing a whole lot that was meaningful. No, I thought it was at the time, but it really, I look back and whatever, that was a different life, but doing what we do now and having these conversations, it's about, you know, knowing how fragile life is and there's so many people out there struggling and and we kind of have the flashlight we've been through a lot of these things so let's shine that light and let's help somebody else who's out there struggling with you know the similar situations that you've been through with and the, the ones that i've been through and all the other guests i mean there's such powerful stories and for me personally it's like being selfish if i don't share it knowing that it might be somebody's gateway to a, hel a healthier way of living i don't know Oh, absolutely. I do feel like um, the more I talked about my daughter, the more stories came back saying, like, I listened to your story mm. and I saw the warning signs and it saved my daughter's oh life, my which is just like probably the most impactful thing that could happen. Mm -hmm. It's like if I have to go through all this trauma, I'm so glad I could save some other family from also going through it. And so I feel like addiction is like even more so like here's all the things that we went through here's what we learned from being in it here's all the mistakes we made and hopefully it can help you like um like i just i don't want anyone else to lose their sister mm -hmm. in the way that i lost my sister because i already had to go through that so like her life might as well take on a whole different meaning and help other people yeah wow so 
are you cool with sharing a little bit more about Kimmy and what that looks like? Absolutely. Um, her story is maybe a little bit different than most uh, addiction and overdose outcomes. Um, she was using on and off for about 10 years. And then she met someone at a rehab, which was like all the red flags for us, mm -hmm. all the green flags for her. <laughs> um, <laughs> it usually is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's hard too, because it was, she met someone who understood her. Yeah. And in that moment, that's what she needed. And she wasn't getting it from myself or my parents because we didn't understand her at that stage. And so she did form a really deep bond with this guy. Um, she ended up getting pregnant and she did get clean through her pregnancy. And we really thought that was going to be like a turnaround for her. Um, and then the, the hardest thing is that she was just the most incredible mom, like <laughs> being a mom, like it, it's something I love, but it just came so natural for her in a way that I'll never be able to achieve. Um, she loves him and like, just, she was able to stay clean for a really long time because of him. Mm -hmm. And then certain people would reappear in her life and, and, and then it would start all over again, but she did manage to flip back and forth between being fully clean and, and then, uh, relapsing, um, and actually when everything happened, we thought that she was in a, a sobriety period. And so it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and I'm probably going to cry during this. <laughs> Me too. I got the Kleenex here. <laughs> I did not get Kleenex. I was so dumb. <laughs> um, and so it, it happened after uh, she had just spent an extended stay with me at my house in, in the States at the time. And we had had this most amazing like two and a half weeks. I thought we were connected in a way that we hadn't been in a really long time because of addiction. I thought she was, I was really hopeful for her future. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I found out that she relapsed with a friend and I actually put up a boundary and I stopped talking to her for about a month, uh, which will always be my biggest regret. <laughs> um, but that's hard because boundaries are there for your own health and safety. Um, and then I got a call from my parents and I had missed about eight calls through the night. Um, and so, you know, at that point, like that's, a 4 a.m. call is not a good call to get and six 4 a.m. calls is a really bad sign. And then they finally got through to me on my husband's phone. Um, and he actually, he writes horror films and he wrote a scene based on the phone call because it was so impactful and deep to watch somebody receive a phone call that like everyone dreads one day receiving that phone call and my mom was so distraught that at first I thought my dad had died because my dad is a very logical, calm, collected person. And so I thought because she was calling that it meant him. And then she just um, paused and got out the word Kimmy. It's Kimmy. 
which is just like a gut punch because then I knew that it was an overdose and I had seen her have overdoses before. And I guess being in like, um, I was very naive when she got into drugs. And so I thought when you overdosed, you instantly died. So on her first overdose, that was big. I remember like getting to the house. I raced to the house to make it there and she was walked out to the ambulance and i was like i thought you said she overdosed and they were like yeah she did and then she recovered from it so at first on this call when they said she overdosed i was a little desensitized to it and i thought okay well like is she alive and they said yes yeah, she's in the hospital and i i kind of got cold and i was mad again and i was like so this is we're just redoing this experience and like i have just torn myself in half and she's gonna be fine and she's not learning from this and then i got into like a really anger stage right. um which is all part of it it's just like all of the emotions on this call um and she my mom asked me to fly home and i was mad and i was like i'm not getting on a on a plane to do this again with her and it actually took my aunt had to call me and she was like, this is different and you're going to have to come home. Mm. Um, and so I did. I flew home. I had to wait 12 hours because I couldn't get a flight out in time. Um, and I walked. I remember like walking into the hospital at close to 1 a.m. And my dad, um, I was like, oh, well, like we should we should go to like wherever you're staying because we were far from our house because it's after visiting hours clearly it's 1 a.m and it i just remember him saying like no there's like no visiting hours in this in the unit that she's in because they can't deny an hour and so we walked in and she was covered in machines and tubes and she didn't look like herself um, my mom was like bent over her body, just crying. And, and I had never seen her like that. Um, I was used to her overdosing and them using, um, a naloxin pen mm -hmm. and that being the extent of it. And so it kind of crashed down everything. And, and that was like the beginning of, I think my grief of losing her, like I, it was the moment where I accepted like, oh, this is different and we've lost her this time. Sorry. It's okay. Wow. Um, and then I honestly thought at that point that we were going to have enough time to say goodbye and then we would let her go in that hospital room. Um which is awful like it's like the worst experiences i just remember whispering into her ear that i was so sorry that i hadn't been talking to her there was a lot of guilt on my part at that moment mm -hmm. um and then we just we spent like about a week in that state of expecting her to pass away because she was on life support and then they pulled that tube and she did breathe on her own um and then I, it's it's a really kind of hard thing to explain that she she began breathing on her own she began sort of speaking on her own but it's not her voice and she went through lots of weeks um in therapy and she 
gained motor functions back, um, like walking, but they're not her. It's not her movements, um, which is really weird to see somebody that you have known your entire life. And it's her body, but it doesn't look like her. It doesn't sound like her. It doesn't move like her. It doesn't have the memories of her. So it's, it's really like having a ghost with you that's just haunting your memory of somebody that you used to know before the addiction. Um, so she is, uh, this was six years ago. Um, and she has bounced through a couple hospitals and she never recovered more than that. She has been diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury um, that is, she will never recover from. Wow. Um, and so I think the hardest thing for me was that on the day that I got that call, I thought, I thought we lost her and I never imagined like in all the times that you deal with addiction as a family member, my greatest fear was that we would lose her and I would bury my sister. And I never <laughs> imagined that you could lose somebody and still keep them in this way. Wow. And where it's my grief with my daughter is very, clean in the fact that she died we cremated her we have her urn and there is um a cut and dry black and white timeline of grief and dealing with that and with my sister she is still physically here but she is very much gone and so the grief is it never really goes it never subsides in the way that it can when you lose someone and there is some facts around it. Right. Because this is something that no one had ever told me was even a possibility. I had never heard of anyone going through it. I still don't have, there's no community for me, like in the stillbirth community that I can lean on because most people have lost someone in addiction and they are gone mm -hmm. and and ours is just this weird, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it's just an ongoing state of grief. Wow. Oh, my. When you shared that your story is a little different, that's exactly <laughs> what that is for sure. Because I, I don't know many stories like that. And I don't know any stories like yours. It's amazing. I mean. Yeah, which is, it's hard to talk about because I can understand why some families who have lost and buried a child would feel that uh, we are lucky in some sense that she is still here and I can still physically hug her, but she doesn't hug me back, which hurts mm -hmm. on top of that. And um, I'm really sad that her son is seeing her in this way and it's it's overshadowing the memories that maybe would have stayed sharper yeah. if if she was gone and that's all he remembered. But now this has taken over his memories and it just kills me because this is, like I said, it's like a ghost that just sits in the corner. Um, and she was just like this more like full of life person. And I wish that those were the memories that he still had of her. Right, right. Yeah, it must be. Very difficult for that young fellow to go through all this too. 
Yeah. Um, and he has actually since then lost his dad as well through addiction. Um, he passed away last year, uh, also to an overdose. And so my, he's living with my parents and he has this beautiful life. Um, he's a very happy kid. He's surrounded by people who love him. Yeah. But at the end of the day, he's lost both of his parents to addiction. Um, which is just something I know will affect him eventually. Like he's, he's young enough right now that he knows a little bit, but he doesn't know the details and he doesn't know the full ramifications of drugs. And honestly, he just, he was only four when it happened. And I don't think he remembers her before this version of her. Whereas my son's a little bit older and he has mentioned um, like he remembers her before and he's brought it up a couple times. Like, why is she different now? Mm-hmm. And that's like, how do you get into explaining drug addiction to 12 year olds? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's some heavy stuff for anybody to go through, especially youngsters, right? It's confusing and, they don't have the capacity or the just simply the cognitive ability to understand the complexity of it all. Right. So it's, <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's definitely a difficult topic to discuss with children. That's for sure. Holy smokes. Yeah. It's a lot, but I also feel like, um, it gave me the opportunity and my, my son's a little bit more, um, open to some really hard conversations because, uh he also went through losing his sister and um it's it's hard to explain to a child like yes we take medicine to make us feel better but some medicine even if it makes you feel better too much of it will make you feel bad and like where that line is for them because i do want the conversation to be very open because he is almost at that age where he will be exposed to it. And I, I want that dialogue to be not something that he's afraid to bring to me ever. And I, I hope that what they have gone through will help them maybe guide themselves and even some friends through some really hard years. And it's like that thing that you said, like, if you have to go through it, I hope that there's some things that we can benefit ourselves and people around us from having going through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, we do a lot of work over the last six, eight months around resilience and resiliency and, and working with, you know, individuals in Calgary and some of the foundations that are there that are doing amazing work in that space. And they talk about adverse childhood experience and how, you know, at the youngest ages when our brains are forming and those experiences that we go through similar to, you know, your son and, and Kimmy's boy, you know, having the supports there, you know, they might not utilize them today, but having those supports around and having that loving, safe, nurturing environment where these conversations are, aren't taboo to talk about where, where you can have open and honest dialogue and explore um, what this looks like for them as they go through it in the years to come, the, the, you know, the memories of these circumstances and Kimmy and these things, right. Just to, just to have that support helps to build that resilience in them and, and 
just the weight of it doesn't lead to that toxic stress that we all know can can take us down those rabbit holes of poor coping mechanisms and eventually right, you know it could be drug abuse whatever it looks like yeah i feel like and it's not our parents fault but i no. feel like in previous generations we were so trying to shield kids from any kind of those experiences and we were trying to make sure they had a perfect childhood and it maybe set us up in a failure kind of way that when we were exposed to those experiences we didn't have the tools to navigate them and so i'm yeah i really hope that for everything they have gone through and i know as an adult myself like all these experiences now in hindsight can help me navigate a lot more in the future because like it's just an experience-based thing so i think that definitely the open discussion even involving kids before you think that they need to be involved is probably helpful in a way that our generation just didn't get from our parents yeah yeah and i couldn't agree more that generations previous to us our parents generation right those conversations weren't being had they were shielding us from those you know dark things um i totally agree with you that in this day and age i mean it is such a common occurrence nowadays to know somebody who's struggling with addiction or substance use or you know the, the grief and the loss and and to have those conversations at an age appropriate level and just normalize this this communication back and forth so we don't have to carry it in that that heavy backpack until you know for me i was 40 when it finally blew up i mean just to have those conversations is is a step in the right direction yeah i do feel like talking is such a, um, a therapy that is not valued as much as it should be mm -hmm. And you nailed it because I know how therapeutic that conversation is, especially with somebody who's, you know, like-minded, somebody who's empathetic and has gone through something similar. Our stories are a lot different, but the common thread is the feelings, right? When you were sharing about your sister and the addiction and your parents, my oldest son struggles with addiction and it's just, our stories are way different, but man, the, the, the feelings of grief and anger and helplessness and all these they go together and they, we share that, that similar thread of, we know what it feels like. And it's, it's heavy. It's heavy. And I feel like people forget that at the end of the day, um, those feelings really just come back to like love. Like I just, I wanted to be able to love her through it. And mm -hmm. you can't, you just can't help them by just love so you do need to be able to talk to them you do need to empathize and understand why they're doing it um and i feel like we are kind of crossing that like yeah. our previous generations it was like no it's an addict and we can just cut and dry and there was a lot of like tough love yeah um and i i don't think <laughs> I don't really think that tough love works a lot of the time my parents did try it i feel like my parents tried everything they could they did um it really expensive rehabs they did free rehabs they did church-led rehabs they did therapy like one-on-one -on -one with her they did family therapy they tried all these outlets and then they did try tough love where like 
they kicked her out of the house, which is hard to do, especially to a daughter, because that led to horrific experiences. Um, but really, all of those things that they were trying to do is they were just trying to get her back to a place where they could show her that they loved her enough for her to stop doing it. Yeah. And I think that is such a valuable piece. And I, I work with a lot of parents or I hear from a lot of parents of, you know, children or adult children that are struggling with addiction. And I think it all comes back to love, right? It doesn't matter which method you're trying, whether it's the tough love or the, the treatment options, whatever that looks like, it all comes back to love. And it goes back to that piece we talked about earlier as parents, right? It's ingrained in us. We're, we're just wired to want the best for our children. And, and it's so hard to see them struggling and, you know, depending on which method or which um, path you take in this, in this support of your loved one. I mean, that's completely up to you. I can't tell you what's right or wrong, but I think it doesn't matter. It all comes back to love. You're just trying to do the best you can and for them. Right. And it's different for everyone. Oh. Like tough love might work for some people, but some people need something completely different. And so it is such a growing learning experience. I think as parents, um, to try all those things while giving yourself the grace that they might not work. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, even if they don't work, you tried because you love them and you just would, if you would give anything to have them back and you're just trying to find what that anything is. And unfortunately not everyone has something that will pull them back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know speaking you know, from my experience with a son who struggles with active addiction, when I came across the the acronym or the analogy of the three C's, that it, it became a little easier for me to, to work through this, you know, my mental process and my self-healing with my son was that, you know, I, I didn't, I can't control his addiction. I didn't cause his addiction. I may have played a little part in it at some point and I can't cure it for him. You know, these are all things that he's going to have to take this journey. I can support him and I can love him through it and decide which route I'm going to take in my support method with him. But those three C's really helped me come to terms with, you know, at the end of the day, I can't fix this for him. You know, I got to mm -hmm. find a way to, to stay mentally healthy and, and be my best version of me so that when he is ready for that support again, I'm there for him in my best in my best manner. Right. I saw something this week that said, like, remember to give your parents some grace because they are also doing this for the first time. <laughs> and I think sometimes we forget like that with age, they seem like they understand a lot more, but really like, I, I know it myself as a parent, I'm really just winging it and we're just making it through these years. And it's a lot easier when they're younger, even though the days are really hard when they're younger, it's still easier because they are not dealing with lifelong consequences at that age. Right. And so I know that like my parents probably would have done a lot of things differently, but they didn't know. And I don't know what's coming in my future with my kids and so all I can do is like, like you said, like be your own best version so that when they do need help and they are willing to ask for help, 
or not even ask help, but accept the help mm-hmm. um, that you can be there for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big piece. And, and I love how you, that's, you know, my brain, I had never been exposed to that statement that you just made about giving your parents some grace. Cause this is the first time they've gone through this too. That's, that's such a powerful statement and something that's overlooked so many times, right? I always would think, you know, well, mom and dad are, you know, they're adults, they're smart people. They should be able to work through all this stuff. They'll know the answer. And now this is the first time. This is something that we don't prepare for until you're in the middle of it. And then, man, it's all the chaos that's going on around you based on, you know, the behavior and the actions of the individual and, and then the internal feelings that we're having towards this, it's the anger, the grief, the fear, this, the loneliness, all these things. And now I got to navigate supports and where do I find them? And oh my goodness, it's just a, a tornado of chaos. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot for the person going through the addiction. It's a lot for the family mm-hmm. try, wanting to help and not being able to help. Um, it's just like, I remember it being described as a spider web and it was just, it was going to reach out to every corner of our lives. So it doesn't matter if you're trying to hide it, like it's, you're never going to be able to hide it and pretend like your family is not going through this because eventually the cracks start showing. And I just, I think that I would rather have the support from my own community behind me if I was dealing with it with one of my children. Mm-hmm. For sure. So you just, you just touched on a real important piece, I think, is having the support of your own community behind you. Um, if you could share a few things around, you know, what that support would look like, what, what is helping you today? What is helping your parents? What, you know, cause this is an ongoing thing that's, you know, like you said, right. Um, Kimmy is still here. You're reminded of this, this, um, obstacle and you're reminded of the circumstances around, you know, your sister likely on a daily basis. What are you guys doing? What do you do to, to cope with that? What do you, what kind of supports are you utilizing? Um, that's a, that's a big topic because I do feel like myself and my parents and even the two of them, Mm -hmm. we are all grieving this in a very different way. Um, and so my dad is a very hands-on, um, he sees her a lot, goes and visits her at this place that she's living. Um, whereas I find that when I have to put myself in that building, it affects me very Mm -hmm. long-term and I carry it with me in a mental state that is not, I know it's not good for me. So I do try and limit that time with her physically, Mm -hmm. um, mostly because she's not, if she was getting something from it, I think I would put myself at that risk in order to give her something. Um, but she has, uh, she's currently in like an, almost an Alzheimer's state where there is like very little short-term memory. Um, she knows me, but she doesn't, um, she knows my two boys and she doesn't know my two daughters because they were born after her overdose. And so there's like a disconnect. Um, and so a conversation is very one-sided with her and I find that hard and it breaks my heart. And I, it's, it's more of like a, 
a self-preserving thing that I choose not to spend as much time with her as my dad, whereas my dad struggles a lot that I feel that way because he doesn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so I think it's just, it's really hard right now. This is a unexplored territory. I don't have anyone and no one I know has gone through this exact scenario, which feels very isolating. And it's hard to talk to with people because they don't understand and I don't want to miscommunicate it. Um, Whereas like on the stillbirth side, there's so many women that I know there's lots of like gatherings and get togethers and support groups. And it's, it's a lot more community on that side, uh, which I feel is really sad that I don't have that on this side with Kimmy and it breaks my heart that my parents don't have that because it has been such a blessing for me to grieve uh, my daughter in that way. And they just don't have access to the same things. Yeah. Wow. I really appreciate you sharing that because it really shines a light on, you know, how we talked earlier about the, the, all the different ways that people fall into addiction. There's just as many ways to get into recovery. There isn't just one path that works all the time. Right. And it, and it flows over into the healing for you and your family too, that, you know, you shared about your dad, you shared about yourself and both are different ways of coping with this and their, your healing journey is different than your dad's. Um, there's many pathways to healing. And, and I love how you, you know, I've obviously done enough self work around this to recognize how harmful it is for you personally and mentally to go visit your sister. So, you've put some, some safeguards in place and and that's how you navigate that. And that's your healing journey. That's amazing. Right. And, and also I'm very aware that like it could change at any point and I might feel differently in a year. Um, we just actually moved back to Canada after being gone for 15 years. And initially I thought I was going to spend a lot of time with her. So it did catch me off guard that I was pulling back because in my heart like i want i want to be there and i want to like i think you're always hopeful like Mm -hmm. i could change this and i could pull her out of this (laughs) mental state like (laughs) which is very far-fetched dreams um but at the same time i've i've had enough life experiences to know that um boundaries are a really healthy thing uh everyone should have boundaries (laughs) they are really hard to put in place because they are beneficial um so yeah like i mean if things changed and i'm not feeling overwhelmed by having tiny children at home and i do have some more time and some more headspace i might visit her more yeah um but that's just not my life right now Mm -hmm. and i can't i can't put myself at risk when it's not going to benefit her in any way right now yeah for sure what sounds like um oh man i'm just thinking about all the different uh emotions that we touched on today and that were brought out and what a what a journey that you and your family have been on and continue to go on and uh i just really can't thank you enough for being vulnerable to come on here and share this well, share your journey with us and our listeners because 
I 100% know there's somebody else out there that's going to hear this, that's going through something similar. And, and hopefully that's, you know, the, the key to their door that's keeping them stuck. Right. maybe they can reach out and, and share some of, uh, the supports that they've been able to find or some of the supports that you've been able to find for individuals or, you know, just, just opening up those conversations is, is the key to getting on the other side of a lot of this, or at least taking those first few steps. Yeah. And I find that, um, since you brought up emotions and there's a lot of them, um, I, I think in like, a my pre all this trauma life, I really thought that emotions were like, you either were happy or you were sad <laughs> And it's a different world when you open up that you can be both joyful and really devastated at the same time and that those emotions can coexist with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not black and white. Everything is very gray. Um, But but gray is a lot brighter than like the darkness that I think that a lot of us sit in. And I think that unless we talk about it it stays really dark. And like you said earlier, I liked your analogy with the flashlight, like shining stuff, shining a light on all these topics really helps um, brighten up those dark, dark topics. Yeah, it sure does. If you could leave our listeners with one little piece of advice or a suggestion that, you know, maybe somebody shared with you along the way on either side of your journey with your daughter or with your sister, or just something maybe that has really helped you or that has stuck with you all this, all this time that maybe someone else might find helpful. Do you have anything like that, that you might want to share? Um, Curve oh my gosh, that's such a, yeah, like that's such a big mm-hmm. wide open topic and there's so many things. Um, I think just life is really short. Um, I definitely did not think that I was going to die the day before I almost died. And so I really wish that we could live in a way that we really take like the one day that you're living today. Don't take it for granted. Um, cause life changes so fast and I'm so grateful for the memories that I have with my sister and the times that we like those will hold me for the rest of my life um I don't I believe very strongly that um like I believe that my daughter is still around me in that way and I believe that even though my sister is physically here I I feel a lot of her influences in my life that still um affect like things that i do with my kids um so even if we lose somebody they are still always connected to us yeah wow yeah that's that's pretty powerful stuff and part around life being so fragile is so true, right? I remember hearing all the time about, you know, you're not guaranteed tomorrow and all these things and it would go in one ear and out the other. And I never stopped to really think about that. It's a very cliche thing that I think a lot of us say, but we don't really mm -hmm. fully grasp it, that it is, it's really the only thing in life is that it's fragile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the part that, 
I was going to mention is, you know, once I stood in that darkness and was fully committed to not taking another breath the next day, that's when, you know, and here I am today, that's the moment where I understood that statement that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Right. And what a grateful life I live today and try to have the best day each day, because you're right. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know what's coming down, you know, the, the line today. We don't know for us, our loved ones, you never know. Right. So making the best of every day and all those little cliches I used to hear that I just ignored now. <laughs> I mean, the cliches are awful at the same time, <laughs> but I, I think like, even if you were to die tomorrow, look at all this amazing stuff that you have done with the podcast and connecting people and helping families go through addiction. All of that time in those small increments of one day at a time has been life changing for so many people. Mm. And there's no way for us to really understand it unless it's in hindsight. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Isn't that the truth, right? Wow. Well, I know we're going to continue to do this and continue to help people the way we do. And I know after meeting you briefly for this one hour and 11 minutes that uh, you are helping people. And by you sharing this story, I know that you're going to inadvertently help somebody else out there who's going to listen to this and it's going to resonate with them, right? And it might be the the green light for them to reaching out for support. And I hope it is. And I hope that, uh, I hope that by us having this conversation today, maybe we can help one other person avoid some of the stuff that we went through. Yeah. That's the best. Even if it's only one single person, it is, that's so worth it. Uh huh. A hundred. That's like a unwritten kind of mantra, right? If it helps one person, Yes, I'll come and share. Yes, I'll come and speak. And and I know I get that from you as well. You know the power in that helping one person. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me. Um I've uh I've gotten the opportunity to talk about my daughter a lot in podcast form. Um and I have never been invited to talk about Kimmy in this way, um, which was daunting at first, but has been also really therapeutic for myself. Wow. Um, so even if that one person <laughs> that we helped is myself, <laughs> um, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to speak on this today. Oh, and I, I can't express the gratitude I have for you being willing to come and share this and take that courageous, vulnerable step. Because like you said, you hadn't really done it before around the topic of your sister and it was powerful. And, and, uh, I just can't thank you enough for sharing that because I know it's not easy, but it's going to be so helpful for other people. And at the end of the day, it's helpful for yourself. And I know by helping other people, it inadvertently helps myself all the time. So this, this helped me today too. It's amazing. (laughs) It is amazing. (laughs) Cool. Well, I definitely want to thank you again. And uh, with that, we will wrap up this episode of From Darkness to Life. And uh, don't forget to check out our new social media page on Instagram. Um, You'll be able to find Alyssa's episode on there as well and that's on instagram at fdtl podcast and uh i guess with that we'll just sign off and thank you very much Alyssa. thank you 
From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the real stories of people who've triumphed over the many challenges of life's journey. If you or a loved one needs support, please reach out to ourcollectivejourney.ca. Our commitment is to empower you to build resilience as you journey towards recovery. Consider showing your support by donating online at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pate. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Crookshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you.